Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks. And today I'm joined by my wonderful, amazing and beautiful co-host, <laughs> Ben Wilson. Uh, I do ML stuff at Databricks. Yes. And today, so we've actually been talking for an hour um, and what we are going to talk to you about today is building stuff that sucks or more precisely avoiding building stuff that sucks. So uh, this was born out of me complaining over the past 60 minutes about a variety of projects that just don't make sense. Um, I'm working with some customers, obviously we're not going to name names, and um, they're very uh, skilled and smart and good at communicating and collaborating and they're just perfect in every way except for this one thing where they build things that might not be necessary or even valuable so um ben when you are told to build something that you think does not make sense what goes through your mind how do you think about evaluating whether that manager or that requesting person uh, is making sense and thinking logically so I'm I'm going to have to step back a few years to answer that because uh, that most certainly does not happen anymore. Uh, there's an overwhelming process that occurs within my job now where many very brilliant people are looking at feature requests and like, what should we be working on? And there's a codified process that's involved in making sure that we're not committing engineering resources into building something that is not well thought out or doesn't really solve an actual problem. However, that being said, prior to this current role that I'm in now, uh, this happened all the time for me. Uh, and it, it happened when I was in the field at Databricks. It happened in comp like every company I've ever worked for prior to the, my current position where somebody, I, I call it box ticking development. And that was one of the things that we talked about before we started recording was, was like, hey, there's this requirement that comes from some place that we need to have X built in order to satisfy some checklist that an executive has. Like, are we safe in this situation? Have we built these 73 things and they go down they check boxes that but there's a huge disconnect between the person who is crafting those those checklists the person who is checking off those checklists and the people who are building the things that are the check marks themselves and it, i've seen and done a lot of that work where you look at what the requirement is and I think the worst scenario is you just get the line item from that checklist. We need to build X. That's it. And then it's left yeah. up to a data scientist or a data science leader or an ML engineer or a software engineer. If they don't have the wisdom and the experience to sit back and say, why are we doing this? Or if there isn't a company culture where it's safe to say, should we be doing this? Like, what value does this bring us? Do we need to do this? If there's no pushback to that, 
you now just own a development task that you might not have clear requirements on or the requirements are there, but they might not be applicable at all to your company, your organization, or your team. And you're just building something because somebody told you to build it. So do you mind taking us down uh, memory lane and providing some tangible examples that you saw in the field at Databricks? Um, the exact use case that we talked about before we started recording was something I, I've heard many, many times, usually from like very big customers. And these are big companies, like Fortune 100 companies. And they bring in, they say, well, we have these requirements that we need to, to adhere to. And sometimes, a lot of the times you look through those lists and you're like, yeah, this is legit. Like, you should have all this stuff. And our like either our platform has that and it's just natively supported or it's something we're working on. We can do this, you know, get on a preview for it and try it out. It might be a couple of rough edges, but you, you know, we'll work together and make it good. And then there's that other 5% of stuff where you're looking at and you're like, hang on, uh, disaster recovery or <laughs> you need high availability. And that'll be like the, the requirement, high availability. And of course, it's a cloud deployment. So already, when you're talking about the cloud, you're talking about extreme reliability, far more so than anybody. And I'm, I know there are people out there that are probably listening. They're like, well, my data center has never gone down. Great. Awesome. Uh, doesn't mean that you're going to have a guaranteed uptime all the time. And I've worked in many places where we had our own data center and somebody pushed a config to uh, effectively like a command management system that allows you an interface to that, that data center that just breaks it for everybody. You're like, well, the uh, internal systems are down today. Uh, I wonder how long it's going to take them to figure that out. And maybe it's, it, they have disaster recovery in place that somebody can roll back a commit change to a configuration systems are back up and running in less than five minutes or at some of the places I've worked, uh, there is no log of what somebody did. Uh, I mean, it's, it's in the system logs somewhere on one of the computers down there in the data center, but you just have some, you know, Cheeto encrusted fingernail donut munching clown who's just typing in, Linux commands at will uh, directly to a keyboard that's attached to a, you know, full stack, you know, data center rack. And they're typing in all these Linux commands and oops, they just changed the permissions for the root directory for all people that are interfacing, which now just breaks all, you know, protocol traffic to that server. And it's like, oh, you need, you need pseudo access now to even do anything with this server. Good luck reverting that chuckles any stuff like that it could take 48 hours it could take a, a week to recover from if that person is a complete moron which a lot of times they were or they get somebody super senior who knows what they're doing comes down they're like what have you done to this system like i have to fix all this stuff this is going to take me hours so that human element of what you get in a local data center just doesn't exist in the cloud there are reliability things that happen in any cloud region. You know, 
we're all human. We all make mistakes. <clears throat> it's just there's systems in place for most cloud providers that rolling back to known good configurations is pretty much automated. It's really fast. Um, but you also have people that are involved in shipping code. You know, software engineers are developing stuff all the time and they do make mistakes. Bugs happen, you know, regressions happen. But for the large majority of cases, a serious region world ending outage is very rare. And it's usually linked to something like a natural disaster happened and, you know, an entire region of the country is without power for 10 days. So, of course, the data center doesn't have enough diesel to run all of its generators for that amount of time. They need to shut things off so that their cooling systems don't go down and they start melting copper inside the data center. So, yeah, that can happen. But are you doing business anyway at that time? And, you know, when I see that, when I've seen those line items in the past, I'm just like, okay, what do you want us to do? You want us to create a, a way for you to exfil data from production that's in this one region to this other region and then get that up and running within two hours in the event that a once in a century storm hits cool uh we can think about that i guess but the data center is not going to be accepting any traffic so you want to you want to map your configuration from one region to another and then start that that new region up and have all the data ingest what what are we talking about here do we need cross-region replication for our data okay um we can do that the cloud providers all provide that. You can send data to every region for that provider if you want, if you're willing to pay for it. Uh, it's not cheap. And then the question then becomes, well, how do we know it's, a, it's an exact snapshot of production? It's like, well, now we're talking about, you know, a shadow deployment effectively of your services. So, you know, double the fun, double the money you're now running two versions of production in real time at all times. So every time a packet of data comes into one data center, it's now, you know, going to both data centers. It's processed by the exact same production ETL, the exact same ML models, you know, everything is identical. And I've been in situations where you're talking to some engineering executive at that company, like data science manager or something. And they're like, yeah, that's what we want. Like, must be nice to just be able to burn money. That's cool, I guess. <laughs> like, how many users are going to be on that versus how many on your main? Like, well, everybody's going to be on the main one because we want collaboration, but we want that other region to be available at any time. Like, that's whatever your cloud budget is right now, just multiply times two, and that's your operating cost. <clears throat> and then you're going to need some more people that you're going to have to hire that are going to have to maintain that. Okay, let's say that we have that budget. How do we verify that that all the the information is is exactly correct? And that's where it becomes complex. And you're like, well, we have to do validation checks periodically. We'd have to extract, like, do table dumps from region A, send it to region B with the exact same filter, and make sure that the data exactly matches, or the models are the exact same. You know, are we going to be retraining 
a non-deterministic model in parallel across regions on the same data, but that determinism now means the model is going to be slightly different. Is that okay? Or do we have to migrate the model over as part of its training evolution? The devil's in the details with all this stuff where you start thinking about what do you mean by exact replication and how far down this rabbit hole are we going to go? Yeah. So like, Benji, requirements? Yeah, Ben just summarized in about 10 minutes what we talked about for the last hour. And I would be curious. So first of all, a lot of the requirements that are brought down from higher levels of management are not always based in reality. And so what I would actually love to brainstorm with you, Ben, and try to figure out basically the, the cause and the solution for this. So disaster recovery, when there's an entire Azure region outage or GCP or whatever cloud you're using, if there's an entire region outage, you cannot run stuff. You have to move to a different region where there's not an earthquake or a hurricane and the server racks are actually operational. Um, that said, uh, it would be sort of beneficial to have i don't know it'd be great to like understand why people think that's such a big problem um and especially if there's the sla of triple nine or five nine uptime guarantees why are people so tied to having this shadow deployment that's actually ready in another region do you know why that's the case ben i think most of it's due to they got burned in the past because of some crazy natural disaster or they had their own data center that there was a fire in the corner of the data center and the fire department came in and opened the hoses and ruined all the data center, you know, racks. And now they have to, you know, start thinking about how to recover business operations and it becomes a bit complex and disruptive to the business. You can talk about like, hey, we lost this amount of revenue because of this thing that happened. And people panic at that. They never want that to happen again. Uh, it could be from high up, like board of directors level saying, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, CTO, you need to figure out a solution where this never happens again to this business because we lost a ton of money or a ton of business because of this. So yeah, you're going to have this reactionary nature uh, associated with that. And the person who's being told by the people that can fire them from their very cushy job, um, you know, they're going to understandably come up with a bullet list item to say, hey, what happened down in Puerto Rico you know, make sure this never happens again. Is that person who's at that level making that that decision the one who's going to know how all of this stuff works? No, they're not. They're not close to the metal anymore, if they even were in, in the first place. So they're going to come up with a list of requirements or maybe just that one item make sure that we're covered in this situation because if not, the board of directors is going to remove me. Um, and they're going to pass that down to people on the, on the front lines to figure out how to do it. Now, does everybody who's working on problems like that, are they equipped to deal with that? In my experience, no. Right. You need people that 
have that expertise. And most of those people work for the cloud providers. So you, you need to start making some friends and making some calls and asking lots of questions before long you start realizing, wow, we're in over our heads. This is so much to think about. This is multiple years of work that we have to engage in, in order to have this, to meet this requirement of like being covered in this eventuality. Yeah, I would, I need to test out a, a hypothesis and would love feedback. Uh, when thinking about these types of massive decisions that uh, impact lots of an, of an organization, it seems like there are two ways that an executive could get this wrong. The first is, as you mentioned, not understanding the system and sort of the pros and cons of the system. So take disaster recovery. The con is, all right, you can't do stuff in your cloud if there's an Azure outage region, a region outage. Um, that's the con. Uh, but on the flip side of that, to account for that con, you have to develop a disaster recovery solution. You have to test it. And you also have to pay for all the storage and the compute that deploys that, that disaster recovery solution. So it's sort of this uh, continuous trade-off where there's pros, there's cons, and there's sort of an inflection point where you should be doing this or should not be doing this. I would argue that a lot of executives don't even think about a lot of the pros and cons list, and they're just like, this is a requirement, get it done. Do you think that's the case? I wouldn't pigeonhole everybody into that into that you know classification i've worked with ctos that are like ex-engineers they're super smart they're they can know just looking at a line item like that like okay we need to hire a hundred more people to do this properly they know you know they're not idiots i've also worked with some executives i'm like yeah this person has an mba they they started straight out of college down like a business and management track they're now in charge of a technological organization and they have no clue which is fine it, as an executive you can come from a technical background or you can come from just a leadership background totally fine right it shouldn't be the role of an executive to figure out how to do anything it's what to do and why to do it all right. So if you're non-technical, how do you go about assessing whether something is worth the maintenance and development cost? You don't. If you're in a position of management, your role is not technological decisions, in my opinion. Unless you're a first-line leader where you know, you're a manager, senior manager of a technical team, usually you come from that background and you're learning more about leadership and how to manage teams and the HR side of the business and <clears throat> keeping your people happy and motivated and stuff. That's the role of a manager. Um, the people that are making that, that requirement, what they should be doing. And I've seen this work out very well in situations where they don't have the context and they know they don't have the context, but that, that leader person, their only job is to hire people that do know how to make that determination. Like, hey, should we do this? Yes or no? Get feedback from people who know. And a good leader is going to do that and collate all of the opinions and 
and uh, all of the data associated with people's responses and make a command decision based on like, this is the direction we're going in due to, you know, this list of 37 items that we've verified uh, because we've done research and, you know, did our homework. Right. And organizations that function that way function really well in my, my opinion. Um, and from all the evidence that I've, you know, accrued through a, you know, a career of working in, in tech so far is those leaders that listen and know how to properly delegate stuff like that to the people who will know, but are open about receiving answers from that they might not want to hear. Um, if they're, if they're truth seeking people, if that's, that's what drives them, they just want to know an answer that's correct then it's pretty effective um on the converse side of that though uh a lot of these companies that have requirements like that or requests like that whether it's explicitly based in reality or not it seems to me and companies that i've seen the bigger the company the more fear there is from first-line leaders and tech leads about communicating bad news to executives. So instead of instead of arguing, this is you know what they feel like it is. Instead of saying like we shouldn't do this and this is why, they're terrified of doing that. Or maybe they did that once and then they got told to shut up by some you know director or VP or something. <clears throat> and this the lead executive that's requesting that this get done that that response never gets to their level there's too many layers of management in between so that the phone tree doesn't function correctly uh so that poor person is putting that that requirement together they don't even know that it's a it's a stupid thing for them or it's useless or maybe it's valuable but it requires some serious investment of time and resources in order to do properly. So what they end up doing is everybody's just kind of, you know, the people that know better uh, are kind of looking around just like, man, does nobody else realize this is stupid? Like, why would we do, you know, we could get this done in three months. Like they said that we were supposed to, but it's going to be junk and it's not going to be validated. If we ever have to fail over, there's all this stuff that's probably going to go wrong because we're not doing integration testing. We're not, we're not even updating these scripts that we're using to, to build this new environment. It's not part of our release process. Or if it is, it's now slowing development down. So one week worth of feature development to say, like, add three new tables to our data warehouse. And if those three tables aren't reflected in the migration script and then aren't tested as well to make sure that it works correctly in that environment. Um, yeah, it's just going to be a dumpster fire if this ever happens, but because the prevalence of this is so low, it's like once in 20 years sort of event, it just doesn't happen. And people are like, well, let's, let's fulfill the requirement, check the box and then move on. We, we have direct disaster recovery. Does it work? Nobody knows. Got it. All right. So let me see if I can recap my, 
my takeaways. So typically managers or directors will not just blindly request something. They hopefully will think through it critically and understand the pros and cons. Um, that said, oftentimes it's really hard to estimate the exact con and the exact pro and the cost associated. So again, if there's a region outage, how much does that cost? Also, for the solution that would mitigate that disaster, how much does the maintenance and development cost? Both of those are, are sometimes difficult to estimate. And so making a decision based on those moving targets and, and nebulous unclear targets, um, that can lead to incorrect decisions. Is that about right? I mean, even, even managers and directors aren't going to know the answer to this. They shouldn't. It's not their job. What a manager or a director, a, a, what a director should know, a good directors and the ones that I work with now are freaking fantastic at this. They know what team has the person who can best answer questions that they have about this. So they know who to ask and they know who to delegate collecting all of these responses. So the director will tell, you know, these three managers, hey, have these 18 people that are across your six teams provide feedback on this. Tell us, is this even feasible? Let's do a prototype real quick and see like, Hey, we're going to time box this to three days and we'll send, we'll have like five people work on this. If this blows up and just doesn't work at all at the end of three days, we've learned a lot about what the complexity is of this. But if we get a working prototype of something and, and this is, this kind of works, you know, in this one situation, it gives us an understanding of the scope of this instead of just guessing at the scope and being like, well, you, you know, you're always going to have somebody who's going to sandbag. You're like, well, this is, this is 26 person weeks of effort. Like, do you know, really? Like, we know this is just large work. Let's go talk to the, the people that have done work like this in the past and ask them and say, how long do you think it would take to build these 37 or these 38 components of this system that we're, we're talking about and you get some architect or principal engineer you know somebody who's you know been in the industry 20 30 years get their take on it and say hey can you help scope this and talk to all the people that are involved and like what is the big picture here about how big of a change is this going to be and how many resources do we need all of that happens before that little checklist gets created or it should get created to say, like, can we do this? How much is it going to cost in time, money, new hires? Do we need to create a new team? Do we need a new management organization around this? Like all of the business impacts to this thing. Is it so important that it, that it outweighs, you know, the cost of, of doing this yeah that's just the business side that's that's management's job figure all that stuff out but from the technical side where you're asking the questions from just like should we do this from a technical perspective like can we do this right that's the tech lead job is to come up with here's the scope like you're not thinking when you're doing requirements docs and and you know, planning out a project. You're not thinking about, should we do this? That's not the job of, of a TL. TL is, tell us what it takes to get this done. 
and it's management's job to figure out should we do this yes or no so you are the tl of mlflow open source and as a leader and somewhat of a decision maker you're you're obviously assigned a lot of projects but i've been part of standups there have been many features where you're just like hell no we're not doing this and i was wondering how much transparency you think is required and also what's the optimal amount of transparency for a team of your size but then also within an organization and to, to double click into the question i am an rsa i am some level in databricks should i be able to go to Ali, our CEO, and say, hey, why did you make this decision? Or should there be a Google Doc <laughs> explaining why he made that decision? That'd be really transparent. That'd probably be the most extreme level of transparency. And I would maybe like that, but it's a lot of work. And conversely, should everything come down from Ali as God's word where a lowly RSA can't question it? Where's the balance? Wow. Um, so he does not act like that, by the way um at all uh so he's not a, a dictator um none of the founders are at the company uh they are they are so wedded to the truth or the seeking of the truth i've never seen a group of people more focused on that like they they embody the absence of hubris uh, in my opinion uh because they have ideas. They have great ideas. They have bad ideas, like just like anybody else does. But they don't look at their position title and say, well, I'm CTO or I'm CEO or, and this is how it's going to be. They give directives to the teams that own components and say, I would like to do this. And I think this is a good thing to do. Please tell me what it would take to do this. And then from that initial statement, Everything else is documented where it's like, this is a major initiative that we're going to be getting into. So we need to in, like figure out who needs to be involved in this. And we don't need to involve everybody because there's no time. If, if everybody was involved in everything that's going on, nobody would get anything done. So who are the relevant stakeholders in making an evaluation of this project? And then who's going to lead it? You need a leader for this project. Sometimes that is a, a TL who's drafting up a, a, you know, a review document or design document. And then that person opens that design document up for commentary by anybody who would potentially have a say in this. That's not restrictive. That's very open. You know, a lot of times it goes out to the whole department to be like, hey, open call on on comments. I've seen PRDs that have as little as three comments on them. And then at the top, it's just got approved. Green box, good to go, let's do it. And then I've seen BRDs where there's 7,000 comments on it. And you look through the comment history, like, whoa, this is crazy. <clears throat> because it, it, that doesn't mean that the design was bad. It means this is important. People have a lot of opinions on it. And there's a lot of evidence that needs to be added to this because this could potentially be disruptive to the department or to the company. So we need to really think this through. Sometimes that, that review process can take an entire quarter. Sometimes it can take an entire year. I've seen for certain projects where you're just 
you're doing prep work, like engineering development work and feature development work in preparation for that decision to be said, okay, now we're ready to start the work on this massive project because we've done all of this lead up work and we've proven that we can actually support this. Let's do it now. And then you form cross-functional teams and like, you know, it gets pretty exciting, you know, when you see all that stuff working together. But everything, at any point, anybody who's in that decision process can ask the question, like, why are we doing this? And you'll get an answer. You know, you're not going to get yelled at, you know. But if you're not involved in that, like, if something's being done in the SQL side of Databricks, <coughs> and even though I'm in engineering, if I go up and say to one of the TLs or the managers or directors or something, be like, why are we doing this? They, they would probably be very confused why I was asking that. And they wouldn't yell at me or anything. They'd just be like, we're curious, like, what part of what you do is going to be affected by this? Um, and I would not be able to give them a, a rational answer. I'd be like, oh, I'm just curious. They'd be like, okay, well, please read the, the, the doc. The doc should tell you why we're doing this. That's the first three pages of it. Uh, hopefully that's clear. And if it's not, let us know. We'll add some more information to it. Nobody does that. Uh, I definitely would never do that. I don't have context. I, I have no clue why they're doing what they're doing if I didn't read that doc. And usually when I read the doc, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a pretty good idea. Cool. Now, if if they're touching something that does touch stuff that we deal with, they're going to tag us on that. They're like, hey, please review this section. This affects you or or this is something that we need help from your team and input on. And we'll give that. And it's very collaborative and very friendly. You know, everybody's trying to help each other out because we need help too, you know, and that's just kind of how it works. But if you're, if you're so far removed from making decisions like that or having the context, um, yeah, you'd probably get the same response that I just explained. And people would be like, why do you care? Like, here's the doc if you want to read it, but just curious why do you have an issue with this or you know sort of thing here's a saucy question before we move on to solutions do you think the decision to acquire mosaic ml for databricks which is uh, an ml company that we got for 1.3 billion dollars do you think the design doc or decision doc that was generated in ali's head should be public to the entire organization no not at all. Why? Zero context. Hmm. And that is a founder and board of directors decision. That it, that's a business decision. Mm -hmm. But do should, I think it was the right one? Hell yeah. Do, yeah. I, do I think it was well thought out and meticulously planned and, and homework was done? Oh, yes. No, nobody at the top of this company makes decisions like that without really thinking it through and trying to even convince themselves that they're potentially making the wrong decision and they'll debate. I'm sure there was very fascinating, would have been cool to be a fly on the wall in some of those meetings where they're all sitting around talking about this and debating right. it. And it's thorough. Yes. People are not dummies. Okay. 
Cool. So I just wanted to be clear that there is sort of a, a, a limit to transparency and too much transparency. It not only creates a lot of work for the decision makers to package up their decision into a readable format, but also like if I disagree with the decision or agree with the decision, it doesn't matter. Um, and while it might be cool, as Ben said, to be a fly on the wall, um, it's it reduces the efficiency of the organization and the velocity if people are going and sort of micromanaging all these high level decisions. So there's a balance. Well, <clears throat> there's also something to be said about if you were to like on our team, we generate a design, which you've seen a ton of them. You know, we do them all the time. We create a design doc of a solution that we have to some potential you know, feature request. Something needs to get built. Uh, would you say they're fairly thorough with what we what we generate? Like I would. Thought out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty thorough, you know. Uh, even things that we call like one decision doc. They're usually like five or seven, or, you know, go through and list out all the pros and cons, examples of alternatives that we could use. They're very extensive. But if every one of those that we filed, if we had to send out to the entire company, and you've seen how many we do, you know, it's around about 10 a quarter. And that's just for five people, right? Imagine if all 1,500 engineers at Databricks did that and sent that out to everybody. Your inbox would be a never-ending list. Like every day, you'd probably have 20 more to read through. And each of those documents are going to be anywhere from two to 50 pages long of very small text with diagrams. I get those, you know, TLs get notified of like almost all of them that go out within your department. <coughs> I can follow along with most of the stuff in our department because I have context of like all the moving pieces and parts, but there's certain aspects even within department in ML. I'm like, I don't have context at all on how feature store works. I know that we interface with it. We know their APIs. That's as, that's as far as it goes. I don't know their source code. I don't know how they do what they do. I don't have time to learn what they like, how they do what they do. So if I got that design doc and I started making comments, the relevancy of the comments that I could come up with would be suspect. And I would, it would probably just look like an uninformed person asking questions that are irrelevant. So I don't leave comments. I, if right. I'm curious, I might read, like skim through it and be like, oh, that's really cool. Like, look at what Alcus is doing. That's, that's awesome. But that's as far as it goes. I'm not going to leave a comment because I just don't know. I don't have their, their level of context. Cool. So let's say we have a decision. We do have some level of context where we are, our input would be valuable. And we think this decision is terrible. It is going to be really expensive to build, really expensive to maintain. And the cost of not building a solution for it, not that high. It's not that big of a deal. Let's take turns giving some tips for people who are in this situation on how to approach talking to people above them and telling that person above them that, hey, your idea is maybe not the best and we shouldn't do this. Yeah, okay. You want to start us off? 
I mean, pro tip number one. Uh, it's one of our company mottos. <laughs> it's something that, particularly in engineering, uh, is adhered to pretty extensively. Let the data decide. And that's that's a catchphrase that might sound cliche and kind of cringy, but when you really think about it, all that is is saying, use the freaking scientific method. You have a hypothesis, your opinion of something. Go and collect the evidence. So in the realm of software, that becomes very simple, right? We're not talking about physical engineering here or, you know, medical science or something that in order to prove out your hypothesis could take months to do. If you're, you know, even okay at software development, you should be able to prove your theory that you have or prove out whether something's going to work in less than an hour. Go write some code. Take that code clean it up, put it into a document, create that document. And that document is not your idea sucks. My opinion's correct. Here's all the evidence to, to do that. That tone is not going to work anywhere you go. People are just going to look at you and be like, what an a-hole, you know, nobody's going to want to work with you. But if it's an analysis where you're saying I'm seriously considering, and I'm approaching this with an open mind saying, can we do this? And here's the decisions that we'll need to make. That's a design doc where you're saying, I'm thinking through this problem and trying to make it work. Where are we going to get tripped up? And what are the complexities involved? And that's the creative aspect of software development. It doesn't matter if you do an ML, pure data science, statistical stuff, or pure software engineering. That design phase where you're thinking through the problem and using your create creativity and your wisdom and and uh, experience to write out, hey, what could go wrong here, or what do we need to actually build in order to make this thing work? And then, okay, let's dive into that. What are the components that need to be built to make these features a thing? And then, and you keep on diving lower and lower until you find something that's like. Is there a solution that already exists for this? <clears throat> Can we use that? Does it meet the requirements? Or do we need to build something? And if it's in that, hey, we need to build something for this, now we need to think about what does professional software development look like? Are we staffed to support this increased feature load? What is the maintenance burden for this? How are we going to test it? Where is it going to run? Do we have infrastructure that can run this? Have we ever done this before? Who owns the code? Who owns the maintenance? What are the, what's the process for escalating in case this breaks? How severe is this if this goes down? So all of those questions, that's like a new product division that you're, start, you're now talking about. <laughs> of like, hey, a team needs to own this. They need to build it. They need to design it. Then build it. Then maintain it. And set up, you know, CICD for it. We need to make sure that this is all covered and we can know if the system has an issue with it. It's a lot of work, you know? So that yeah. document is what's going to provide guidance to not just, it provides guidance to you as you're thinking through the problem. <laughs> that's why I love them. You know, when I'm working on something new, that's like very vague. I'm like, how am I going to solve this? I start writing down the big ideas that I start thinking about like, okay, what is involved here? Uh, 
and then start thinking about what could go wrong. It's just this creative pursuit. You start, you know, writing down a bunch of ideas. And then I go back a couple hours later and start deleting stuff. I'm like, that was stupid or that that's irrelevant or, oh man, I totally forgot about these things. Add these three things <coughs> and then start playing devil's advocate saying, can I challenge myself that my logic here is, is correct or flawed? Like pick apart your own hypothesis and then anything that you need evidence on that you you can't just say, I think this is going to be this, uh, or I think this is going to be a problem. It's like, no, prove that it's going to be a problem or that it's fine. And that's done via code and results. Uh, and then once you're done with all that, you need to get feedback. Pass it around to, to peers of, your, of you who are in similar positions of authority uh, or you know seniority and make sure that they're they're looking at it without context because you you get blinded by your own context <clears throat> your bias that you have when when thinking through something because you've already made these decisions in your head um about you know, here's the four options i think option 2 is the best one and here's why well an independent observer might come in and say i don't know why you came to that conclusion however I do know that your logic is flawed. Like I can't read what you wrote here and infer why your decision is the most obvious one. Please add more evidence and convince me. Right. And that forces you to go back and be like, oh, okay. And sometimes that forces you to be like, actually option one was better because now I really went through the process of thinking through this and or proving to myself that which one is the best. So if you're not doing that, and you're tackling big line item, checkbox items, you're doing yourself, your team, your organization, and your company a huge disservice. So in true TL fashion, make sure you scope out the solution. Is that the one-liner? <coughs> <It's, coughs> it sounds like a one-liner, and it sounds like it's easy, but of course, let me tell you, that's the hardest part of software development. Writing code simple, right? <laughs> Once you get a number of years under your belt, it's like, whatever. Implementation is an implementation. You have peer review for that. You know, everybody's helping everybody else out with things that might not be done correctly. You have automated systems to validate your, your code is correct. <laughs> but the design phase, if you mess that up, which it does get messed up, right? If if that wasn't messed up, we would never build flawed software. Um, right. But if you're not spending more time planning and designing than you are on implementing, you have a higher probability of creating garbage that you'll end up throwing away. Yep. All right, my tip is less on the implementation and scoping side, and it's more about navigating an organizational hierarchy. I think one of the most important things is understanding the chain of command and the incentives at each level. So your manager is probably looking to please their manager who's looking to please their manager until the buck stops somewhere. And if you are several levels down and you disagree with uh, the top level decision, 
you not only have to convince your manager that this is incorrect, but their manager and their manager and the person that is going to be convincing the person above them is that person. So you ha- your argument has to be so good and so clean that your manager will vouch for that idea to their manager, typically. It's rare that you can sort of skip level all the way up to the decision maker if you're sort of um, low level. And so with that, it's really important to know who's involved and their incentives. Um, not to paint a negative light, but often people are... A, biased, and B, have ulterior motives. And at an organization like Databricks, it's pretty uh, pretty solid. But I've worked with so many organizations that are just looking to check boxes and continue on with their day-to-day. So getting inside the head of each level and figuring out what you need to appeal to to convince them of something, uh, I've often seen that be a requirement for making change. And if you don't do that, nothing happens. Yeah, it's it's pretty true. Um, knowing how to play the politics game, uh, particularly in consulting, is very valid, like very very valuable. Um, you can't appeal to reason as an outsider and just implicitly be trusted. Uh, so, evidence based arguments are incredibly important. Um, if you don't have that, it's it's a completely hollow argument. Nobody's going to, you know, anybody right. who's good is going to ask, like, show me, like, show me why you say this is such a bad idea. And if you can't convince them with, I guess that's the other part of our discussion is what happens when you, you know, an unstoppable force hits an immovable object. Uh, if you go up against somebody who does have the authority to say, just do it. And you have all the evidence that shows this is a stupid thing to do. What do you do? Yeah, that's another episode. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you what I do. Uh, yes. I don't have to do it anymore. Because um, just not in that, that sort of situation ever anymore. Um, but in the past, if it was something that was trivial, insignificant, I didn't really have that much vested into it. Uh, I don't arbitrarily pick mountains to die on uh, with with regards to, you know, work that I do. I'll just say, thank you for listening to my opinion. Uh, here's the document again for you to peruse in the future if you so choose. Uh, I'll go and build that now. But I'm not going to just do a BS job of building something in the most half-assed manner just to check a box. You know, I start the process of saying, I'm going to start the design and I'd like your feedback on it as we develop this. And here's the scope of what's going on. And if they start arguing saying, Oh, I don't, I don't believe that 12 weeks of scope for that. Let's make that two weeks. I'm like, all right, I need six times as many people then. (laughs) Can we can we get like hire more people to do this or hire consultants or something? When you make a question about money, if they're like, hey, I need to do this the right way and I'm not gonna sacrifice quality because that's your name at a place. If you're a technical person, what you're building is is your own reputation or the reputation of your team, which should trump your own reputation, by the way. Um, 
<clears throat> if you compromise on that and just ship it because you know it's never going to be used or it's not that important, if it sucks and it's broken, guess who they're going to blame? They're not going to blame that manager or that director that told you to build it. They're going to look at who built this. What an idiot. Like, who would think that this is a good idea? Where's yeah. the design doc for this? That's exactly what people are going to say or think. That, yeah, that's actually a great point. Don't like, you don't have to convince prior to making the decision. If you get overruled, you can convince throughout the decision and say, all right, if you actually want to go down this route, it's going to be prohibitively expensive. Are you going to fund it or not? That's mm -hmm. a great idea. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it's not about trying to get your way by doing that. It's the end goal is try to build what's right. Right, exactly. And so either way, you don't build a wrong thing by just not building it, or you build a very complex right thing, a very expensive right thing. Both what, however ways. complex it needs to be. Exactly. To meet the yeah. requirements. And then yeah. if the requirements need to be relaxed, then that's a win. You know, that's the trade-off. <laughs> that's how all software is developed, actually at companies is at the big companies at least <laughs> um everything is a compromise you know take any feature that you've seen us do and if you just think about it for a moment um realize that throughout that entire process and the development process we were making compromises you have to you can't yeah. support every use case you can't support every feature you can't do it all and you can't, you know, there's the, that the scales of balance are between number of features and, and usability versus stability. So the more cool things you bake into this, the more awesome things it does. That's now all like higher maintenance burden that you've just placed on the team. Like, Whoa, I have this, this PR that has 14,000 lines of code. Look at all the cool things it does. People on the team, you know what everybody's reaction is going to be. Hey, can you split this up? And uh, do we really need to be doing all this stuff? Like, do we need this? And the, the motivation for that is <clears throat> this is going to break six months from now. How much effort is it going to be for us to fix that? And then when it breaks three months after that, because some other thing that changes or when we need to modify this behavior, how many lines of code do we have to change and how complex is that going to be? How many tests do we have to write here? Yeah, it's all compromise. Heard. All right, let me think of one more. So I think I'll go back to the soft side. I think that at least typically for me, my logic is pretty sound. And um, I would... When I make incorrect decisions, it's often based out of incorrect starting first principles. And so I think it's really important to have some levels of humility about what you know and try to really be empathetic and figure out where the decision maker is coming from. Um, oftentimes, managers live in a very different world than where you live. Um, they talk to different people. They're privy to different amounts of information. And so being humble and saying, this doesn't make sense to me. This is why it doesn't make sense. And maybe presenting that really quickly in a concise manner, uh, that's a great way to approach it. But at the same time, have faith in the people around you because mm -hmm. you aren't always privy to what they are. Yeah. 
And the more complex your job is and the more cutting edge your company slash team is, the faster you will realize uh, and the higher velocity that your team has. The, the sooner you will realize that you most certainly do not have context. And if you if it seems like you're surrounded by smart people, uh, you probably are. And uh, if you have questions, ask, like pose those questions. Don't be like, hey, I think this is a bad idea. It's more like, can I get more information on, yes. on this aspect? Mm. In that 30-second exchange, you'll probably get all of the context. And then all of a sudden, it'll make sense to you of like why you're doing this. Like, oh. But that's the thing that I would always do with customers when I was talking to them. When I'd see those line items, I would approach it in that way. Like, could you explain to me, like, what is entailed here and why are we doing this? Exactly. And it scared me. And I knew I had to take those different tactics when I got a, an entire room full of blank stares. Some slack-jawed, drooling stares of people being like, we don't know why. Like, well, who knows why? Like, what, is, what are the requirements here? And people just shrugging, looking at each other like, we don't know. We hired you to come and do this. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, I, I need some sort of project plan here about what, what the reasoning is here. And if nobody knows, then keep on escalating higher and higher. Because that senior person in the room, when you're having that conversation, if they don't have context, then it's time to be a little panicked. They should know whoever's giving you that task and saying, yeah, this is what we're going to be working on. This is why it's important. If they are just like, hey, my boss said we got to do this. And I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe that person doesn't know why either. That's the scary situation. That's where you start asking the questions. Yeah, exactly. It's about finding truth. And hopefully someone in the organization has truth. If they don't, then there's no truth. And that's pretty scary. Yes. I have worked for those companies, by the way. Hmm. Sounds like a lot of fun. It was not. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. All right, cool. So I'm going to wrap. Um, today, we talked about decision making, specifically pushing up against a decision maker whose decision you disagree with. Uh, first of all, good decision makers know who they should ask when scoping a project. Their job is to collect a bunch of information from reliable sources. And a really important component of that is having those reliable sources, having the people that you can confide in and that you can know will give you truth. A tech leads role is to determine, can we do this, this and how? But a director is more focused on, should we do this? And this uh, is typically a collaborative approach where a director will go to a tech lead, understand the, the risk involved in building something, but then also on the converse side, understanding how not building that solution would impact the organization. Um, and then if you're not involved in decision making, you probably shouldn't be privy to that decision. You should have faith in your decision makers and leaders that they're doing a good job. But if you are privy to the decision making process, it's great to have an open uh, format where you can discuss such as a design doc. And then finally, we concluded with some tips. So anything else, Ben, before we... Before we end the recording no it's fun episode yeah for sure all right well until next time it's been michael burke and my co-host ben wilson 
Have a good day, everyone. We'll catch you next time.